0: Hello and welcome to an episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. Today's guest, Dr. Craig Peacock, will be talking about ketamine infused therapy and other cutting edge and perhaps out of the box ways of viewing psychiatry and potential treatments. He is an adolescent and adult psychiatrist, addiction specialist living in, unfortunately in Colorado, where the sun never shines and is the host and the co-producer of the podcast. Back from the Abyss, which features psychiatry in storytelling. So he was a co-therapist in the phase three trial of MD, MA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD, which he will talk about shortly. And A of particular interest is the use of psychedelics to treat mood disorders, PTSD, and who knows what else. So he's a graduate of the University of New Mexico School of Medicine and did his psychiatric training at Brown University on the East Coast. Welcome, Dr. Mm -hmm. Hickok.
1: Yeah, thank you for inviting me.
0: So my, Can you go through a little bit of history? I know a little bit of history about ketamine, but I think it would do better coming from you who actually uses it and studies it. So what's the history mm-hmm. of ketamine throughout the last 30, 40 years?
1: Mm-hmm. So ketamine has actually been an FDA-approved medication for 50 years. So it came on the market 50 years ago as a general anesthetic. is an incredibly safe general anesthetic that unlike other general general anesthetics, it doesn't depress breathing, doesn't depress heart rate, and has been used tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of times around the globe over the last half century. In the 90s, there started to be some case reports and anecdotal evidence that ketamine actually had some great utility for depression. And then finally, in the mid-aughts, there were a couple of classic studies that were done where they used ketamine. Uh, milligram per kilogram IV infusion in emergency rooms with acutely suicidal patients. And they found that most of them had remission of suicidality within hours. And so that's what really piqued interest. This was roughly 15 years ago. But it's really been over the last, say, four years that ketamine has really exploded. I've been doing ketamine treatments, IV and IM, for about almost four years. And when I started doing it, I was one of the only people on you know, the front range of Colorado. Now there's a bunch of different clinics and options. And you know, I think it's now become a go-to for treatment-resistant depression and bipolar disorder. You know, it was kind of an alternative experimental treatment a few years ago. I think most psychiatrists now would say if you failed medications and psychotherapy, that it is the next step.
0: So the old days, it would have been ECT for medication-resistant depression. Do you think that ketamine treatment is, in fact, replacing ECT as the gold standard, or is it treating different kinds of things?
1: Yeah, I used to send, gosh, I don't know, five to seven people a year to Boulder for ECT. And often with really great results, I'm a big fan of ECT. But since I started doing ketamine treatments about four years ago, I probably refer one person a year for ECT. And you know I think now for treatment-resistant depression, it is the go-to treatment, except for people with a psychotic depression or perhaps geriatric patients. Uh, it's just so safe. It works so quickly. Uh, it doesn't have the cognitive effects that ECT has. So now I think you know, in the sort of algorithm of treatment-resistant depression, ketamine is ahead of ECT. In fact, I just did a podcast episode on that last week that I recorded and that will be coming out in about three weeks on my show.
0: Awesome. Awesome. It's great to hear that. So what kind of assessment would you if you could design the universe of ketamine delivery? What would be state of the art assessment delivery? And follow up? What would you look Mm -hmm. for?
1: I think state of the assessment has to first involve a really good psychiatric evaluation for treatment-resistant depression. So, treatment-resistant depression is a complex, kind of ambiguous term that we use in psychiatry a lot. But basically, it means people who've failed some number of medications and/or therapy, psychotherapy. So, what's happening now, though, all over the country, is there are all different options for ketamine, so some. Ketamine clinics have a psychiatrist who actually does a full evaluation for treatment-resistant depression to see are there other options, easier options, safer options, and then may or may not recommend ketamine. Other clinics, you can just show up and almost like Botox, like you can buy your four-pack, five-pack, six-pack of treatments and do them. And they monitor you and it's typically very safe, but there's no assessment whether you're actually a good candidate so i think state-of-the-art ketamine therapy involves a true uh, psychiatric evaluation to see are there other things that should be happening first because what happens is you know, there's such a shortage of psychiatrists in the united states a lot of people i think are coming to ketamine clinics after having treatment with primary care physicians or um, maybe mid-level providers in psychiatry but they've never really had you know, a good eval, let me give you a sense. So I would say probably half the people who come to me for ketamine, I don't recommend ketamine. You know, a classic case might be someone who's had two or three different trials of SSRIs with their primary care doc, which are not in fact even antidepressants, that's a whole other separate issue. And they're coming to me for treatment-resistant depression and I'm saying, look, you've never been on the motor gene or you're using large amounts of marijuana or you have a serious alcohol problem or um, you don't work. In your home all day doing nothing, playing video games. You know, there's a lot of other things to to approach, maybe before you go to ketamine. And so I just worry that you know there's a lot of people who are getting ketamine treatments in America who aren't necessarily getting the benefit that if they had been advised, you know, to try some other things first or concomitantly. Here's a good example: There's more and more evidence that ketamine does not replace medications, but it augments them. It helps them work better. And interestingly, that's Mm -hmm. true with ECT, electroconvulsive therapy as well. So there's some number of people who are going to ketamine clinics, getting better with ketamine, but then sliding back into depressive illness because they're not on the proper medication. And if they had been on proper medication, the ketamine treatments would have held and stuck and lasted much longer. And again, I worry that clinics that don't have a psychiatrist there doing a proper evaluation of follow-up, you know, are providing a treatment, which is admittedly quite safe and, you know, reasonable thing to try. But you know, it would be almost like, what would be a good example? Let's say there were a psychiatric med that was found to be very helpful for hypertension. And let's say psychiatrists started opening clinics for treatment resistant hypertension. So we're giving this psychiatric med and we're helping people's hypertension, but we're not really doing a full evaluation of the hypertension. And so some percentage of people are not going to get better and we'll just say, well you have treatment-resistant hypertension versus uh, an initial evaluation where we could say, "Hmm, is this psychiatric med that helps high blood pressure is this helpful for you or not?" And you know, part of this, the problem again is there's such a shortage of psychiatrists. Uh, and so, I'm not saying all clinics should be run by psychiatrists, but I think there really needs to be a thoughtful evaluation to see if ketamine is the, the proper next step so
0: who is running the clinics if the psychiatrists aren't running ketamine clinics by and large or there is this shortage and ketamine is more widely available than psychiatry is available who's running them
1: yeah they're they're mostly run by anesthesiologists Um, interestingly emergency room physicians run a lot of ketamine, ketamine clinics and the argument they make which is is true i respect this is that anesthesiologists are eminently qualified to to work with this medication because they've been using ketamine for fifty years, and so a lot of the clinics, again, run by ER docs and anesthesiologists, say you know we are uniquely equipped to provide this safely. I think that is true; they're very safe. In fact, when I have patients come to me with cardiac issues or treatment-resistant hypertension, you know, I always send them to the anesthesiologist-run clinics, saying, "Look, if you can do ketamine, you should do it with someone who's you know safest, particularly given that you have cardiac issues." But that said, I worry that, you know, you can just show up at these clinics and get your treatments. Again, admittedly, pretty darn safe, but not have any proper evaluation or follow-up to know if that's what you really need. You know, I would say a third of people who come to me for ketamine have never been on Lamotrigine, Lamictal, which is a medication for depression um both prevents and treats depressive symptoms and it's maybe eight dollars a month it's super safe it doesn't have all the common side effects of other psych meds so more often you know a third of the time i'd say when people come to me for ketamine i say look try lamotrigine first if that doesn't help yeah maybe we'll talk about ketamine again i'm not trying to diss the clinics run by anesthesiologists i think they're very safe arguably safer Mm -hmm. but are you getting the proper evaluation i think that's a big question
0: Sounds to me like a little collaboration would be the best recipe, right?
1: Yeah, I totally agree. Like an ideal clinic right? might have a proper psychiatric evaluation with you know some kind of nurse anesthetist or anesthesiologist who consults on safety or maybe makes sure that he or she does the more complicated, higher-risk cases. That would be great. It's just that you know it's medicine yeah. is so siloed off, and the specialties don't talk to each other. I mean, I don't talk to anesthesiologists. <laughs> I don't. You know, it just doesn't ever come, you know, basically I talk with some primary care docs and a bunch of therapists, and I think um, many other kinds of specialties would say they've never spoken with a psychiatrist. So sadly, we're we're all kind of in our silos.
0: Right, I mean, and I would imagine that if I were trying to deliver the best care to somebody, getting out of those silos would be helpful. But even beyond that, we're talking, I love to hear that you are in fact saying, maybe just because you can afford ketamine or just because you can get into my clinic, this may not be the first-line treatment. Are you finding that money and um, profit are driving some of this ketamine delivery?
1: (laughs) Yes, I, I think so, because first of all, if you look at what the price range of ketamine is, uh, across the country, it, it's shocking. So,
0: Give us the numbers, give us the numbers.
1: Yeah, so in Colorado, for example, IV Ketamine, the bottom range would be around 375, 350, which is what I charge, and the top range would be 800. Um, those per more session. expensive per yeah. session, yeah. And it's interesting, you look at the, at least in Colorado, I'll just speak to that, the less expensive, Ketamine options are almost always psychiatrists, and the most expensive are anesthesiologists. Now, the cynical me says, well, that's because anesthesiologists make about two to two and a half times as much as psychiatrists, and so if they're going to do that work, they want to not lose money. That may or may not be true, but i it doesn't make any sense to me why it should cost so much money, uh, especially when they don't have, you know, often a, any mental health people on staff to do a proper evaluation or follow-up.
0: Thank you for that. So let me ask you an even further question about this. When um, do you know that because of this range of price, and it isn't covered by insurance, I'm going to guess at this particular juncture? um, Are you finding that this is a resource and a treatment for the affluent at this point?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, it's I have a huge range of uh, incomes in my practice, I have some people who are, nice. you know, very. Uh, I, would, I would call them working poor. You know, I slide my scale so they can afford ketamine. I would say most people that are doing ketamine treatments in my practice are very middle class, um, and for some of them, it's a significant financial expenditure. So mm-hmm. it makes a big difference if they're paying three hundred seventy-five dollars out of pocket monthly for ketamine maintenance versus eight hundred, and mm-hmm. Uh, so I try to be very thoughtful about that. Um, you know, there—it's interesting when you look at some of the ketamine clinic websites. They say this is the only way to do ketamine. You have to do six sessions in two to three weeks, and you have to do this dose. And if you don't do it this way, it's not the proper way. And, but the reality with ketamine is that we know it's extremely effective for certain subtypes of depression. But anyone who claims that IV is better, or their dose algorithm is better, or X and Y. That's not true. We don't know the best dosing algorithm. We don't know the optimal timing. We're not sure the best dose to start with. We're not actually sure if IV is better than I am intramuscular. There's a lot of.
0: What about intranasal?
1: Is there an intranasal intranasal
0: way?
1: Yeah, the. So here's, um, probably iv is the best route and i'll just say why because it's going right in your vein you're getting a hundred percent delivery to the brain essentially and with iv if there are any problems during the session you can turn off the iv you can change the drip rate intramusculars maybe 85 90 percent absorbed the big problem with oral ketamine and intranasal ketamine is the absorption is so highly variable so intranasal absorption can vary by two or three fold so mm-hmm you know, you you use you know, X number of milligrams of ketamine intranasally, you have no idea how much is getting in your bloodstream. Or you use it orally, you have no idea. So, And it's also abundantly clear to me and other docs who work with ketamine a lot that intranasal is not nearly as effective as intravenous or intramuscular. It's not even close. Now, it can be cheaper if you order it from a compounding pharmacy and they make it up from generic ketamine. Um, so that is a option for people to try to have some depressive relief in between their IV or IM sessions. But it's a much weaker, less effective treatment overall. And again, partially just because the delivery is so hard to predict and just poor overall, overall.
0: So question for you, you are also an addiction specialist. So you deal with people who have the potential to abuse ketamine, I would think that intranasal and oral ketamine have greater likelihood of abuse, um, just because you're titrating it yourself. Um, Mm -hmm. Is that what your experience has been as well?
1: Yes. Yeah. So uh, there are people who inject ketamine to abuse it. That's fairly uncommon. Most people snort it. So they take intranasal powder. Uh, And I have at least, excuse me, I have at least three former ketamine abusers who are now doing IV treatments with me, and they've all said that none of them get triggered to want to use after the IV treatments. IV treatments excuse me, are so immersive and so powerful and so different than the experience of snorting ketamine that they're not wanting it, they're they're not craving it. In fact, the the next episode I'm releasing on my podcast, Back from the Abyss, is a former ketamine addict abuser who's now doing ketamine with me, and he talks about this very issue that he was shocked. How helpful it was, but also how non-sort of abuse triggering it was because it's being used in such a different context.
0: And it sounds like the brain is being sated as opposed to just teased a little bit. You know, if you're getting a hundred percent utility of the IV ketamine, then there's a possibility that the brain is actually feeling what it should feel from the resource.
1: Right. And there's you know, there's an interesting Feature of drugs. One of the things that predicts how addictive a drug is going to be is how quickly it hits the brain. So one of the reasons that cigarettes are so addictive is that the the blood the blood flow from the lungs goes right to the brain and hits the brain very quickly. Mm-hmm. When you excuse me, when you snort a medication, it hits the brain really quickly. So when we use IV, we drip it in over forty minutes or longer. So even though people are getting a big dose of ketamine, the brain is receiving it at a slow, steady rate. So ironically, even though intranasal absorption is much lower with ketamine and you're getting much less in your bloodstream, it's hitting your brain fast. So it's a much more addictive way to do it than it is to do a slow drip IV.
0: Interesting. Thank you for, I've been wondering about that, hearing about what is the delivery methods of ketamine, and I appreciate your perspective on that. What do you think is next on the horizon for psychiatric care and medication? And you've been on the cutting edge for a while. What, mm-hmm. what do you see as next?
1: Yeah, this is the m- most exciting time in psychiatry in, I don't know, probably 50 years. I uh, remember when I was getting ready to go to med school, I was a participant in a psychedelic trial of what's called dimethyl tryptamine dmt at university of new mexico medical school <clears throat> and uh i told the psychiatrist i said i really want to work with psychedelics someday in psychiatry and he said uh, that's decades away and that's now here i mean first of all ketamine is not traditionally considered a psychedelic but it clearly is ask anyone who's done a higher dose iv or i am it is a profoundly psychedelic experience But on the horizon, we have two things at least that I think are going to change psychiatry in profound ways. And the number one is MDMA, which is also known as the street drug molly or ecstasy. Before MDMA was made illegal in 85, it was used in the underground therapy community both to treat PTSD and to also, they did a lot of couples work with it. And it was apparently widely, hugely successful, particularly with trauma and when it was scheduled by the DEA in 85, a number of therapists went to DC and said, please, whatever you do, don't ban it outright. You know, make it schedule two or three or four so it still can be prescribed and utilized, but the DEA denied that and made it schedule one, which means no, no accepted medical use. But in the meantime, an organization called MAPS has been raising money and finally doing the research to show that in fact, MDMA is a profoundly powerful PTSD treatment, and I was part of What's called the phase three trial, which is the last trials before FDA approval, where we were using MDMA versus placebo, MDMA assisted psychotherapy or placebo assisted psychotherapy to treat severe PTSD. And the results so far in the phase three trial are so strong that it's looking like MDMA is on schedule to be approved, hopefully in the next couple of years. And with fewer participants than almost any medications in history. Usually to get FDA approval, you have to test on thousands of people. But the what's called the effect size, the statistical uh, relevance, uh, the efficacy of MDMA is so high that they're thinking they may get FDA approval in the next couple of years with maybe 300 people, maybe fewer, which is astounding. Like the only... Medications that have ever gotten approval that those kind of numbers are maybe some cancer drugs, some of the newer immunologic cancer drugs. and what MDMA could do is totally transform psychiatry in the way we treat trauma because it turns out trauma is is the number one thing that we struggle to treat in mental health because number one, trauma wrecks your ability to trust and connect, and what has to happen in mental health treatment? Number one, job one, you know we have to connect. With our patients with our clients we have to we have to bring them in they have to feel held and cared about and safe and trauma makes that brutally hard and so what often happens in trauma treatment people spend years with their therapist and their psychiatrist psychologist trying to find some measure of safety and so the first months or years are often spent just trying to build safety and comfort whereas mdma assisted psychotherapy is helping people find safety in that first session. Uh, because what MDMA, one of the things MDMA does is to completely dial down fear, it cranks up trust, and it helps people feel like they're in a safe container where they can, they can walk into the fires of their trauma and they feel safe. Yeah, it's, MDMA is like a, this amazing fire retardant blanket that allows people just to walk into the burning building of their trauma. Wow. So that's thrilling. The second thing I think that's really thrilling, I'll just say a little bit, is psilocybin is from psilocybin mushrooms. Psilocybin has been used uh, for centuries and centuries, but it's also, there was some really interesting research back in the 50s and 60s with psilocybin and depression and mood disorders and anxiety, and that interest is renewed. And psilocybin also is in final phases of, tri- of trials, FDA trials for treatment-resistant depression. I believe there's an OCD trial Uh, And I think within three years, we could easily see psilocybin as an option for people to treat treatments as in depression, to do PTSD work. There's some really interesting research on spontaneous remission of severe OCD with high-dose psilocybin. So that's going to be on the table. So, And then just on the other side note, TMS transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is is a treatment for tremors and depression, but not that effective. But there's a new protocol that's ju- just coming out of Stanford that are going to potentially make TMS achieve its you know, hope for potential, where you know within a week people are pulling out a severe depression after getting you know, really intensive TMS treatments. So, you know, twenty twenty one, this is the most exciting time in psychiatry in a long, long, long time.
0: Please, if you are interested in hearing more about this, visit Craig's Doctor Hickox podcast and listen to some of the stories that he has been offering. And that is from back from the abyss. You have been listening to us today on beyond the balance sheet podcast. And if you have found this interesting, please like us on your platform of choice. I look forward to seeing you and talking again, some next session.
1: Thank you for listening to beyond the balance sheet a podcast designed to help advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families solve some of their biggest medical, psychiatric, and emotional challenges. Visit BeyondTheBalanceSheet.com to read more about our guests and resources, and sign up for our newsletter.